Colossians 1. There's notes in the bulletin. You can track along. This is week 2. In the book of Colossians, last week we looked at verse 1 to 8. It's the first part of Paul's introductory prayer for the church in Colossae. This week we continue that prayer. We look at chapter 1, verse 9 to 14. We'll start with something that we will talk about every week as we go through the book of Colossians, and it's this truth. Colossians is a book about the supremacy of Christ. It's a book about the supremacy of Christ. He is absolutely supreme. He has no rivals. He has no equals. There is no one to whom you can compare him. Jesus Christ is the supreme one in all the universe. He's the creator, we'll see in weeks to come. He's the sustainer. He's the savior. He's the Lord. He is the risen king. He is absolutely supreme. Now, that thread runs all the way through the book of Colossians because in Colossae, people were questioning that and people were looking to other gods, goddesses, ideas, philosophies as rivals to the supremacy of Jesus. And I'll give you one example. It's what Bible scholars call Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a constant threat in the early church. The Greek word gnosis literally means knowledge. For me to define Gnosticism and tell you this is exactly what Gnosticism is, is about like me asking you to nail a pan of jello to the wall. You might get some of it, but you're going to miss a lot of it. It's just a wide-ranging heresy. It had lots of different forms and permutations and manifestations, but at the root of it, there's an idea that there is some kind of secret, special, insider knowledge that you need in order to see the truth about the world and in order to go to heaven someday. So the Gnostics had no beef with Jesus. They were all about Jesus. We love Jesus. You love Jesus. We all want to talk about Jesus. Where they got it wrong is they said, you need Jesus plus you need this secret insider knowledge that only we have access to. You've got to know this thing or you've got to know these ideas if you truly want to see the world accurately and have eternal life. And it manifested itself in dozens and dozens and dozens, hundreds of ways, this idea of there's a secret gnosis or a secret knowledge. It was a threat then, it's still a threat today. We don't usually call it Gnosticism, but Christians today in the United States, in the West, face this constant temptation from people who say, look, we love Jesus, you love Jesus, nobody wants to get rid of Jesus, you need a whole lot of Jesus in your life, you also need to know this one little secret thing. And that one little secret thing could be all sorts of stuff. It could be a political thing. You need Jesus, plus you need to have this political perspective. It could be a dietary thing. You need to have Jesus, plus you need to understand this about health and wellness. It could be a gender thing or a race thing. You need to have Jesus, but you need to think about gender or race in these terms or in these categories. This same threat that Paul was dealing with in Colossae is still a threat today. It's a threat to the supremacy of Jesus. Now, connected with that, this will help us understand our passage as Paul's praying for this church. I need you to know this. The Hebrews rightly, rightly saw a connection between knowledge and action. So for most of the Gnostic cults, 
it really did not matter what you did or didn't do with your life as long as you had this secret piece of key information stored away in your brain. The rest of your life, physical stuff tended not to matter to the Gnostics. It was all intellectual. It was all thinking. So as long as you had this little piece of factoid in your brain, you were good. The rest of your life didn't matter. The Hebrews, they weren't buying that. The Jewish people, historically, were not buying that. The Jewish people understood rightly that if you truly know a thing, it will play out in your life. And if that thing doesn't play out in your life and change your life, you don't really know it. So the Hebrews might say, you know, you know lots of things about God. You can answer lots of questions about God. You could pass a systematic theology test about God. You can have lots of deep conversations about God. But if the truth about God isn't actually changing you in the way that you live, you really know absolutely nothing about God. In the Hebrew mind, the biblical mind, knowledge is always connected with action. And we're going to see that as Paul prays for this church. So last week we looked at the first part of the prayer. Paul gave thanks for the Christians in Colossae. That's giving thanks for them. Now he's interceding for them. He's praying for them. And here's the big idea of the passage. I've taken it right from the text. Paul prayed that the Christians in Colossae would, number one, know, talking about knowledge, he wants them to know God's will. And number two, he wants them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So he's praying for them. He's interceding for these Christians and he's praying for two things. Number one, he wants them to know something, specifically God's will. And he wants them to walk in a certain way. He wants them to walk in a way worthy of the Lord. Now, if we're gonna take that in, we just need to stop and think about some terms because there's a lot of church Christianese in that verse and in that big idea. So let's talk about a couple of things. Number one, God's will the will of God. If you hang around a Baptist church, an evangelical church, a non-denominational church very long, you will, before long, hear people talking about, I want to know God's will for my life. Now, that's a slippery term. God's will means different things at different places in the Bible. We're not going to get into that. I'm just going to tell you that what most people mean when they start saying, I want to know God's will for my life, what most people mean is, I have a decision to make, and I'm not sure which way to go, so I want God to make the decision for me. I do not want to walk by faith. I want God to tell me what to do. Now, these people, talking about God's will, they've sat in Sunday school enough to know I'm not going to go home and get a Ouija board out, and I'm not going to go visit the local palm reader right around the corner. And I'm not going to get a magic eight ball and ask questions and shake it and do whatever it says. Right? They know. I'm not even going to look at my horoscope. I might just glance at it as I'm going from one section to the next, but I'm not even going to look at the horoscope to figure out what to do. They're spiritual enough, they're Christian enough to say, God, I want to know your will for my life. But what they really mean when you strip it away is, God, I just want you to make this decision for me because I'm afraid I'm going to mess it up. I'm afraid little, tiny teeny me, a small, powerless creature is going to mess up the plan of the almighty sovereign God of the universe. So God, please just make this one decision for me. That's not what Paul's talking about here. When he says, I want you to know 
God's will. I want you to have the knowledge of God's will. He goes on to use a couple of other terms. He says he wants them to have understanding and he wants them to have wisdom. This is what Paul is praying about. It's not that God would make decisions about where to go to school, who to marry, how many kids to have, what job to take for the people in Colossae. That's not his prayer. His prayer is, I want you to understand the basic truths of the gospel, what God has done to save you and make you his people through Jesus Christ. I want you to have wisdom about that. I want you to know those things deep down in your bones so that you are then able to apply those truths and walk by faith, not by sight. But look, as Americans, we read this thing. He's praying that they would know God's will, and we say, oh, I want to know God's will too. God, please tell me, where should I go eat lunch today? Roses, Texas burger. I'm torn. I don't know what to do. God, make the decision for me. That's not the kind of thing that Paul's praying about. I want you to understand the basic truths of the gospel, and I want you to know how to apply those truths to your everyday life. Now, here's a second word we need to get square on, we need to think about. It's the word walk. Paul not only wants them to know something, but he wants them to walk a certain way. That word walk is found in the book of Colossians four times. Always it describes the manner of your life, the overarching direction of your life. Three times it's used positively to talk about walking as a follower of Jesus Christ. One time it's used negatively to talk about the way you used to walk before you became a follower of Jesus Christ. But everyone, and I know this sort of sounds like Christianese, everyone has a walk. The question is, is it worthy of the Lord? This is a a biblical metaphor. You'll find it in the Old Testament, the earliest chapters of Genesis, all the way through the New Testament. This idea that you are walking in life. You're headed a certain direction. You're making progress towards some goal. You're not racing there as if you're going to get there in the next 30 seconds or five minutes. That's not what the Christian life is all about. Americans like to think it is. Americans like to think, well, if I go to this conference or if we have a really good worship service or if the preacher would just once in his life preach a really good sermon or if I read this right book, then that's going to... I'll arrive spiritually. But that's not how the Bible talks about our spiritual lives. It's a walk. And you just put one foot in front of the other. You walk by faith, not by sight. You understand the basic truths of the gospel, and you're able to apply those truths to your life. Okay? Now let's combine both of those quickly, God's will and our walk. Paul, in this passage, his overarching desire is that the Colossians would honor God in their thought life and their lived life. I almost made that the big idea of this part of Paul's prayer, that God cares about your thought life and he cares about your lived life. That's essentially what we're saying. That's essentially what Paul is saying in this passage. God cares about what you think about and what you know, and he cares about the way that you walk, the way that you live your life. Do you live your life in obedience to God and his commands. He wants you to know things and he wants you to walk a certain way. I'm not entirely sure which of these Americans care less about. I tried to think about it this week. As Americans, which of these do we care less about? And I came out saying it's a draw. American Christians don't care about either of these things for the most part. 
There is not a great desire among Christians in the West to study the Word of God and to have wisdom and deep understanding about the truths of the gospel. We are superficial people. We pull our spirituality from Instagram posts, from tweets. That's about all we can handle and take in. We're not interested in knowing, most of us, the deep truths of the gospel and understanding them and having wisdom about them. We're also not interested in the way that we live our lives. We're Gnostics at heart. There's a very common belief in American churches of, hey, get off my back. I invited Jesus into my heart when I was nine, so the rest doesn't really matter. I've settled that issue. And the Hebrew mindset, the Jewish mindset comes along and says, wait a minute, if the thing that you know and the thing that you live don't line up, then you don't know anything. Your knowing has to translate into living. And that's what Paul's praying about here. He's praying for the church in Colossae. He's praying on their behalf for them. And he's saying, I want you to know something, what God's will is, and I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. The question for us is simple. What does that look like? What does it look like when a Christian knows God's will, they're filled with the knowledge of his will, and they walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. We don't have to guess. Paul spells it out in this passage. And if you look in your Bible, if you're reading a good, reliable English translation, verse 10, 11, and 12 give you the answer. There are four, in those verses, four I-N-G words. If your sixth grade English teacher was here, she'd call them adverbial participles. She's not here. We live in West Texas. They're I-N-G words. You're looking for the I-N-G words, and that explains to you what does it look like in your life when you're filled with the knowledge of God's will, you know something, and you are walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Here's what it looks like. Number one, you are bearing fruit in every good work. Bearing fruit. That's another Christianese saying. It's Christianese because it's Bibleese. It's in the Bible. You are bearing fruit in your life. It's a biblical image, a biblical metaphor saying you are living your life in obedience to God's commandments. You are living your life in line with the way God intended and God designed life to work. You're bearing fruit. Now, we're Americans. I've mentioned that this morning. Americans are like all people on the planet, except maybe we're worse. We have an inner Pharisee that wants to come out of our hearts all the time. And this inner Pharisee wants to say to us, obedience. The pastor talked about obedience. That's how you go to heaven. You do the things that God wants you to do. You have to be a good person. But that's not the image that Paul's using here. He's not talking about works that lead to eternal life. He's talking about bearing fruit. So some of you, you live in Odessa, you live in the desert, thanks to the miracle of irrigation, you like to grow vegetables in your backyard. I was talking to Delane Jones last night. We were talking about tomatoes, growing tomatoes in your backyard. And her plants look better than mine. I ripped mine out a few weeks ago. They look pitiful. But hers were still going, and they were still producing. And there was a few of these little red cherry tomatoes on her plants. When you go to a tomato plant and you pull off that tomato and you look at that fruit, you don't suddenly say, well, I just killed the plant. It was a good run, but now we've taken the fruit, so the whole thing's dead. You understand, the fruit is the result of the plant already being alive. 
And so in the case of Delane's tomatoes, when she goes out, pulls the tomatoes off, or in the case of my tomatoes, when the squirrels invade my yard and eat all the tomatoes, either way, the tomatoes disappear, the plant's still living. It's the life of the plant that results in bearing fruit. That's the image that Paul's talking about here. That's what Jesus is talking about when he talks about knowing his disciples by their fruit. He is not saying, do a bunch of good things so you can have eternal life. He's saying, if you really have eternal life, you've really repented of your sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, there will be fruit. The fruit comes from being connected to the plant, to the vine that's alive. Jesus, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing, but in me you will bear much fruit. Paul says, when you know God's will and you're walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, you are bearing fruit. Secondly, what does this look like? To walk worthy of the Lord means increasing in the knowledge of God. Increasing in the knowledge of God. When you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is always more to learn. I've gone to seminary. I've graduated twice. I have two lovely pieces of paper on my wall to show for it. And I promise you that the first time, and especially the second time that they handed me those pieces of paper, I walked away thinking, man, I don't know very much. In fact, the longer I went to school, the more I felt that way. There's a whole lot I don't know. There's a million things out there still to learn. You just start to learn how much you don't know. That's part of being a follower of Jesus. It's not that you just learn a certain set of basic facts and you check that box and you say, well, I'm good. I know everything I need to know. I'm amazed when people say to me in pastoral conversations, pastor, I've read the Bible cover to cover. Wow. That's impressive. You got it all figured out, huh? One time through, cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, you got it all figured out. That's not the life of a disciple. The finite creature will never be able to fully take in and comprehend all that there is to the infinite God and his goodness to us in the gospel. So if you are walking worthy of the Lord, you are always increasing in the knowledge of the truth. Thirdly, what does it look like to walk worthy of the Lord, to know his will? Being strengthened with all power. Notice it's not strengthening yourself with all power. It is being strengthened with all power. When I was younger, there was a group of guys, big guys. They were called the power team. They would travel around and go to different churches. I don't know if they ever came to Emmanuel, but I bet they've been through Odessa. These big, burly, strong, muscular guys just kind of picture me right up there next to all those guys. That's what they look like, these big guys. And they come to your church and they get up on the platform and they take phone books and they just rip them right in half. I thought about giving you a demonstration, and I thought, no, you don't need it. You know what it would be like. Just So imagine, save the phone book. I don't even know if we have phone books anymore, but they take the phone book, and they just rip it right in half. They take pots and pans and just curl them up, fold them into a circle, and middle school boys are just loving every minute of it. And then a guy, I don't know what this guy's doing on the bottom. He's, like, got a piece of rebar in his mouth. And he's bending it and he's showing you how strong he is and how tough he is. And there's all of this power on display with the power team. And in theory, they do all this stuff and a big crowd of people come to say, oh, wow, oh, that's awesome. And then while you're there, they talk to you about Jesus. 
Now, I just want to be clear. In Colossians 1, when Paul prays that they would be strengthened, it's not physical power that he's talking about. Not that there's anything wrong with physical power and lifting weights and fitness and all the rest of it. It's not what he's talking about in this passage. He actually explains what kind of power he's talking about. If you look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 11, he's praying that they would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. So this is power that comes from God. It's not power inherent with you. It's from his glorious might. Why do we need it? For all endurance and patience with joy. Endurance and patience. Not bending rebar with your teeth. Not tearing phone books in half. But on the darkest, blackest day of your life, the scariest moments of your life, those are the times you need endurance. Those are the times you need patience. And he's not just praying that God would barely give you enough strength to just sort of skate by by the skin of your teeth, but he's praying that on those dark, frightening terrifying moments in life where you need endurance and you need patience that you would have power that is also joyful. And he's praying that this would happen to you. Not that you would exercise it yourself or develop it yourself like some sort of spiritual muscle. He's praying that God would do this in you. It's a passive verb when he says that you would be strengthened. You can't strengthen yourself in these ways. When you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your hope is not in your own abilities. It's in the shepherd who walks with you. It's in the power that he can offer you and provide you. So if you're knowing with wisdom and understanding what is God's will, and you're walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, Paul prays that this would be part of it, that God himself would strengthen you in a supernatural way with the power, the might that you need to endure and to be patient with joy. One last part of what Paul's praying for. What does it look like to walk worthy of the Lord? It means giving thanks to the Father. There's lots of things we could give thanks for. Look what he mentions in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. God qualifies us to share in an inheritance with the saints, with the Christians in light. Not darkness, but light. The implication is left to yourself, you're not qualified. It doesn't matter how impressive you think your spiritual resume is, you are not qualified to receive this inheritance. It's amazing with all of the information available on the internet, people still try to embellish, lie on their resumes. I mean, it happens pretty regularly. You hear about somebody who got hired for some high-profile position and the fact, checker, fact checkers dig around and realize, well, your resume was all it was all phony. I'll give you an example of this. This is a little bit dated, but in 2001, University of Notre Dame hired a new football coach, George O'Leary. What a great name for an Irish football coach, O'Leary. He was a perfect fit. He had a background in football. He had a background in edu uh, education. His resume said that he was a three-year letterman at the University of New Hampshire. He claimed to have a master's degree from NYU Stony Brook. They hired him. They had the press conference. He moved into his office. It was all great. Until some nosy reporter got a hold of his resume and started digging around, it just didn't look right. 
So they called the University of New Hampshire and they said, hey, did George O'Leary play football there? Said he was a three-year letterman. They said, we have no record of George O'Leary ever playing one down of football at the University of New Hampshire. He didn't play here. He just made it up. If you think that's bad, they tried to call NYU Stony Brook, and do you know what they found out? It doesn't exist. It's not even a school. I'm guessing that means they're not granting master's degrees. I don't know. They just made it up. They found out about the first one, and they asked him. They said, hey, what's going on? He said, yeah, I'm sorry. They said, we're going to let it slide. They found out about the second one, and they said, hey, buddy, you're out of here. You're not qualified. You don't meet the qualifications. Now, look, I hope that your plan on the day of judgment is not to sneak your way into heaven with an embellished resume. It's a bad plan. Almighty God, omniscient God, does not need fact checkers or reporters to snoop around in your past and determine whether or not you're qualified. The biblical answer is you're not qualified. None of us are qualified. I'm not qualified. But when you understand what the will of God is and you're walking in a manner worthy of him, one of the things that will mark your life is thankfulness. You give thanks to the Father. Why? Because he qualifies unqualified people to receive an inheritance with the saints in light. Now, the second question we want to ask and answer is this. On what basis does he do that? I mean, how how does he do it? Is it just like he looks at our resume and says, well, it's close, but it's not exactly there, so I'm going to put you on a curve and just give you the inheritance anyways? That's not how it works. Paul explains how and why God qualifies sinful people to receive an inheritance with the saints in light. Here's how he does it. Number one, he delivers us from the domain of darkness. He delivers us from the domain of darkness. It's right there in verse 13. You may not be qualified for an inheritance with the saints in life, but guess what? Consolation prize. Your sin has qualified you to be a citizen in the domain of darkness. When you're there, it's kind of like the Eagles song, Hotel California. You can check out anytime you like. You can never leave. You're stuck. You can't get yourself out of the domain of darkness. And that's where all of us have landed ourselves as sinful people. Over the summer, my kids were overjoyed to be given a summer reading program by their father. We were trying to curb a little bit of screen time. And so we went to the bookstore and we said, you got to pick three books. You got to pick a nonfiction book. You got to pick a novel, a fiction book, a story. And you got to pick a biography. So they went around and they picked and we looked at their picks and we sent some of them back and we said, no, we're not, we're not reading that. And they finally got their picks. And the deal was you got to read these books over the summer. I don't care how fast, I don't care when, you can do it in a week, you can stretch it out all the way to the end, but you got to read these books. So one of our girls picked a book called Rising Water. Subtitle is The Story of the Thai Cave Rescue. Remember this story? This I read the details about the story this week. It happened in 2018, which seems like 50 years ago after COVID and everything that's happened in the world. But 2018, it was June, and a soccer coach, a guy who coached the Wild Boars soccer team, took his boys out for a hike. 
in northern Thailand and they're hiking around and they're walking around and they're exploring and they go in this cave and they go down and they go up and they go around. They're way deep in this cave and while they're in this cave, a flood comes, flash flood. It just starts pouring rain and all this rain ends up down in this cave and it fills up the lowest parts of the cave and they're stuck inside the cave. Twelve boys and their soccer coach. That's not where you want to be. They were in there for nine days before a couple of British divers made it through the cave and found them, and then getting the boys out of the cave took another three days. It's an amazing story of how they got them out, how they got them out safely, how they had to drug the boys and then scuba them out through these tunnels. Absolutely amazing. But it's also a picture of you and I in the domain of darkness. We have got ourselves in the situation that we're in. Just like these boys in the cave, all they could do is sit and wait for rescue. They were not going to get themselves out. They got themselves in, but they were not going to get themselves out. It was not going to happen. They were completely at the mercy of someone coming from outside to rescue them. That's you and I in the domain of darkness. Stuck. Hopeless completely dependent on somebody else coming to save us. The good news of the gospel is that somebody came and his name is Jesus Christ. He came to get you out of the domain of darkness, to rescue you from the hole that your sin had put you in. So how does God qualify sinful people? First, he delivers us from the domain of darkness. Second, he transfers us into the kingdom of his son. Verse 13, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. This word transfer is a word in the Bible and in the ancient world related to warfare. And the idea is pretty simple. In the ancient world, one nation would march against another nation. A superpower would march against some small people and they would conquer them and then they would transfer them. The word used many times in the Old Testament is exile. They would be taken from one place and literally moved, transferred to another nation, taken out of their home. This is what happened to Daniel and his friends. They were transferred from Judah to Babylon. It's what happened when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and they exiled, they transferred these people to another nation. It's the same word, it's the same concept. In the 21st century, we still have lots of wars and lots of fighting, and we end up with refugees. But today, most nations don't literally pick up people intentionally and move them back to their own nation. So it's not a great parallel for you and I. What might be a close parallel for you and I in 2021 is some sort of naturalization ceremony where you say that a citizen of another country has gone through all the process needed to become a citizen of a new country. But until they're actually in that ceremony and the person presiding gives some declaration that they have been transferred from one nation to another, they belong in their home nation. That's the idea of what we're talking about here when God transfers us into the kingdom of his son. He stamped your immigration papers. He's approved your visa He's given you all the documentation, all the things that you need to have a rightful place in the kingdom of Jesus. This is double good news. He's delivered you from the domain of darkness, and he has approved your place, your transfer, into the kingdom of his son. How does he do it? 
We still haven't answered that basic question. On what basis does he do it? Just a shake of the wand, a snap of the fingers, a putting your old papers under the cosmic rug and pretending we didn't see them. Here's how he does it. God redeems us and he forgives our sins. That's what Paul talks about here at the bottom part of this prayer. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us into the kingdom of his son in whom, in Jesus, we have redemption. We have the forgiveness of our sins. That word redemption comes from the slave market. Literally describes somebody paying a ransom price or a redemption price. It's talking about ownership. We've been redeemed. Jesus at the cross spilled his blood. He shed his blood to purchase his people, to purchase the church of God, to buy them back from sin and death. He redeemed us. And on the basis of his death at the cross, he forgives us of our sins. It's not that he looks at your sins and says, oh, you know, bygones, bygones, no biggie. It's that he looks at your sins and he sees that they were punished at the cross. He sees that the Lord Jesus Christ became sin for us at the cross. He bore God's wrath. He bore the curse that should have fallen on us. Why? So that we might be forgiven. Redemption. Forgiveness. You circle all that back up to verse 9. Don't forget the context of this passage. From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Paul's saying, I'm talking to God on your behalf. And I want you to know certain things. And I want you to walk a certain way. I want you to know that because Jesus Christ has redeemed you, that your sins can be forgiven, that you can receive an inheritance with God's people. You're not qualified. God has gone to the greatest length to qualify you for this inheritance. Paul wants you, he wants the church to know these things. And he's praying not only that you would know the facts, but in a very Jewish way, he's praying that that knowledge would translate into your life and that you would walk a certain way. That's Paul's prayer. That's our prayer this morning for us as individuals, for our church, for our families, that the things that we know about God and his will, that the way that we walk as followers of Jesus Christ would line up with what, what God would have from us, what, would line up with what Paul is praying for these people. So we're going to pray together as we close.